Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello and welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Oh, today if my voice is a little scratchy, it's because I just went to a haunted house with my husband and my kids and I screamed my head off. It was so much fun, but my vocal cords are really, really scratchy today. And so if I cough a little, if I have to clear my throat a lot, that's what's going on. But man, was it fun. I love this time of year. Love Halloween, love everything to do with it. And I love not having the guilt about really enjoying all of the spooky stuff and all of the like scary stories and all of the horror movies. And we make creepy food and we do all of those sorts of things. And it's so nice not to feel like I'm inviting the devil into my home or feeling like I need to apologize for that or like try to make sure that everyone knows that I'm not a witch or I'm somehow selling my soul to Satan. So for those of you who love Halloween and really enjoy just the fun and the creepiness of it, like we are kindred spirits. Welcome to my world. But I can't wait to dig into today's topic. Today's topic is one I'm still working on. Surprise, surprise. Um, Like so many of the topics that we cover on this podcast, This is something that I think is subconsciously embedded in most, if not all, of us who are coming, especially from high-demand religion, but I think this persists just in society in general, not just even in Western society, but this is a sneaky thing that is present in our subconscious, in our beliefs, in our values, Anytime we're raised in a patriarchal society. And I think aside from, you know, possibly some small tribes that are not touched by agrarianism, typically most societies operate in a very patriarchal way. And so internalized misogyny or internalized sexism is something that I think most of us will confront. And as we're talking about female empowerment, we can't really move on to empowering ourselves as women or as non-male, whatever that looks like. We can't move into that space without first talking about the voices that we hear inside our own heads, in our own thoughts, and in our own beliefs, the ways that we disempower ourselves because of the norms and the limits that we carry inside of ourselves about what a woman should be like. And I love this quote by Margaret Atwood from The Robber Bride that I think really digs into what we're talking about here. She says, male fantasies, male fantasies is everything run by male fantasies, up on a pedestal or down on your knees, it's all a male fantasy. That you're strong enough to take what they dish out or else too weak to do anything about it. Even pretending you aren't catering to male fantasies is a male fantasy. Pretending you're unseen, pretending you have a life of your own, that you can wash your feet and comb your hair unconscious of the ever-present watcher peering through the keyhole. Peering through the keyhole in your own head, if nowhere else. And here's the part I love. She says, you are a woman with a man inside watching a woman. You are your own voyeur. And for many of us that were raised in patriarchal societies, we were taught to view ourselves through what's called the male gaze, through the view 
of a man. We were taught to view ourselves the way a man would see us. We were taught to view ourselves the way our fathers would see us, the way a male God would see us, the way a future husband would see us, the way a male boss might see us or men on the street might see us. We're constantly filtering our identity through the male gaze and through male expectation. And as Margaret Atwood says, through male fantasy. And I like that she brings up that whether we're elevated up on a pedestal or whether we're down on our knees, so much of who we see ourselves as and what we see ourselves as capable of doing and capable of being and capable of saying really comes down to what is acceptable to men. Now, I know there are men listening to this podcast, and I want you to know that I don't hate men, and I don't think men are bad. I think you are conditioned to expect and to have a certain privilege, and women are conditioned to meet those expectations. It does not make you bad or good. And today I'm specifically talking to women, but I want men to get curious too. Where are some of these beliefs hiding or residing inside of you? How does it affect the way you see the women in your life? How does it affect the way you see gender non-binary people? And don't worry, today we're talking about internalized misogyny and internalized sexism in that way. But we are going to talk about how patriarchy breeds toxic masculinity, which is how that male expectation actually limits and stifles men too. So stay tuned for that. Kevin and I are going to do two episodes on toxic masculinity and the mask that men are asked to wear. But today we're going to talk about the mask that women are asked to wear and how that shows up inside of ourselves. Now, before we go any further, if you are passionate about helping others heal from religious and familial trauma, please pause this podcast and head to emancipateyourmind.org and make a monthly donation. If you look on the right-hand side of the page, it'll show you all the options. Choose the option that best fits your budget. Even a $1 a month donation helps give me the capacity to set aside adequate time to research and publish these resources each week. When you help me, you're helping thousands of people continue to understand and heal their emotional and psychological wounds brought on by high-demand religion and finally feel free again. Thank you so much for your donation. Now, before we get into what internalized misogyny looks like for many of us, I want us to talk about a couple of different terms because I've noticed in my messages there's a lot of confusion about this. So for those of us who did not major in gender studies, and I am one of those people These are some of the terms we're talking about and what they mean, because I think a lot of us have some misunderstandings about these terms, and some of these terms were really demonized, I think, in our history with high-demand religion. So let's talk about the big one first, which is feminism. I think a lot of times we equate feminism with man-hating, which that's actually misandry. That is not feminism. Feminism is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. This encompasses social, political, and economic equality. So it's not that men and women are the same, because none of us are the same. We're all individuals, right? And it's not that men and women should be treated the same, because that's not really equality, right? If I treated you the way I wanted to be treated, you might not be getting the treatment that you desire. So 
what we're looking for with feminism is for everyone to have equal rights and equal opportunities. This means that if I want to be a firefighter or a wrestler or a boxer as a woman, and I have the skill set and the ability to do that, that I have the ability to do that. This also means that if I'm a man who wants to stay home and caretake my children, and I want to be a homemaker, that I have the opportunity to do that. We call it feminism for the same reason we say Black Lives Matter. We call it feminism because historically, for the past 2,500 to 8,000 years, women have been treated as inferior to men. And when we give women the same rights and the same opportunities that men have, the same representation that men have, we create an equal playing field for everyone. So that is what feminism means. Patriarchy is a hierarchical structured society in which men hold more power, which we know has been the case for the last 2,500 to 8,000 years. Laws are created to benefit men, and men typically have had more power historically. Sexism is the idea that women are inferior to men. If we lived in a matriarchal society, sexism would be the idea that men are inferior to women. So sexism is kind of determined by whether we're living in a patriarchal or matriarchal society. But we have no evidence that a matriarchal society has ever existed. We have evidence that matrilineal societies have existed where people trace their heritage through their mothers. We have evidence that there have been matrifocal societies, which means that female deities have been worshipped and that the feminine has been given a place of respect. But none of these societies had women exercising power over men. But if we had had a society like that, where women exercised power over men and made the laws that affected men and gave them less power, less representation, less rights, less flexibility with what they could choose to do with their lives. If we had had a society like that, then sexism in that case would mean seeing men as inferior to women. But we have no evidence that a society like that has ever existed. So in a patriarchal society, which has existed for several thousand years, sexism is when women are seen as inferior to men. Now, misogyny takes that a step further, and it is a conscious or subconscious hatred of, contempt for, or prejudice against women. And this includes self-hatred because of being a woman. Now, misandry, which I mentioned that term earlier, is the conscious or subconscious hatred of, contempt for, or prejudice against men. And yes, there are some feminists who feel this way against men. And it is concerning. Power over leads to oppression. And it leads to so many of the ills in society that we see today. Power over, it silences some of the voices and some of the perspectives that we need in order to create a society that benefits us all. Now, I also want to talk about these three terms One of them is hostile sexism, and this is what most of us think of when we think of sexism. This is the overt, openly insulting, objectifying, and degrading of women. So this one's really easy to spot, but what's not so easy to spot and is much more covert is benevolent sexism, which I think is what most of us experienced in high-demand religion. It kind of feels like a compliment even though it's rooted in subconscious beliefs of male superiority. So this kind of sexism often puts women on a pedestal, like they're more righteous or they're more nurturing or they're angelic or whatever, so that they don't realize how little real power or authority they're allowed in the system. And we're going to talk about this in an upcoming episode on benevolent patriarchy, 
But it's important for us to understand that not all sexism and not all misogyny looks like that overt, insulting, objectifying, and degrading of women. Like it can feel like a compliment or on the surface look like a compliment while simultaneously taking away power from women so that men can continue to exercise authority and control. And then last is internalized misogyny. So this is when a belief in women's inferiority becomes a part of one's own worldview and self-concept. This internalized misogyny may be expressed as minimizing the value of women, mistrusting other women, feeling competitive with women we consider quote-unquote better than us, or judgmental towards other women for stepping outside of the box patriarchy has drawn around the ideal woman. This may also look like believing gender bias in favor of men. In the most insidious instances, this may look like blaming victims of abuse for the harm that befell them because of their gender or for failing to uphold the patriarchal idea of womanhood. So internalized misogyny, it has the potential to lead to body shame and body issues, eating disorders, lack of self-confidence, a sense of powerlessness or like learned victimhood, learned helplessness, perfectionism, people-pleasing, a feeling that we have to perform in order to be acceptable, and depression and anxiety. Now, in general society, internalized misogyny often sounds like this. I'm not like other girls or women. We're often, as women, trying to set ourselves apart from all of the stereotypes we've been given about women. And we just spent the last several weeks talking about the Christian stereotypes for women, that women are weak, that they're more liable to be tempted, that they can be manipulative or sneaky or secretive, that they might be more evil, that they're responsible for bringing evil into the world. But on the other hand, that benevolent patriarchy that has kind of occurred over the last century elevates women. We're closer to the angels. We're more righteous. We're naturally more pure. We're natural caretakers. We're natural nurturers. We are better at controlling our sexual appetites than men. And therefore, not only do we exercise that self-control in our lives, but we're responsible for keeping men in line as well. All of these ideas are in our subconscious about what women are, and it affects our daily life today. The problem with this idea of I'm not like other girls or women, like let's just slow it down really quick and really hear what we're saying when we say that. And I am guilty of saying this. I hung out with only men in high school because women were too quote unquote dramatic. They were too catty. They were competitive. Do you hear the internalized misogyny I was spouting And have spouted, even as recently as this year, I'm sure going back and listening to my podcasts from last year and even this year, I would hear some of those subconscious beliefs bubbling to the surface. And I will be continuing to heal this, I'm sure, for years to come. But it'll get easier and easier as I allow myself to become aware of it, get curious with it, and allow myself to kind of push back and question some of those beliefs And really take those thoughts and beliefs to trial. Meaning, I go and look for evidence that those beliefs aren't true. Oh, I believe that women are catty? Well, do I have evidence that lots of women aren't catty? They're actually really loving and benevolent and kind and loyal. Oh, I believe that women are dramatic. Well, what if... That's actually not drama. What if that's just human emotion and all of us have human emotion? What if emotion isn't drama? What if emotion makes sense when we understand where it comes from? 
So challenging my beliefs like that and actually looking for examples out in the world, really pushing back on those beliefs as if I were prosecuting them in a court of law. What evidence would I need to disprove that belief? And I go after it as if it's my day job. And I challenge you to do the same. Now, the problem with the whole I'm not like other women is that it really does treat women, which is over half the world's population, like a monolith, as if we all have the same traits. And even worse, that those traits are undesirable. And that men will only respect us if we aren't typically female. Like, that's so degrading that we as women believe we can't be like other women in order to be respected and valued. And that having female traits is undesirable. Now, here are some of the stereotypes of women. This comes from the Harvard Business Review. Some of the stereotypes of women in business is that women are more emotional than men, aka dramatic, needy, clingy, catty, nagging, irrationally angry, or bitchy. That women are less intelligent, particularly that they're bad at math or science. That they're bad with finances, they're bad drivers, they're illogical. Another belief is that women have no backbone or that they're weak. Some of the words that come up with this are they're too nice or they're poor negotiators or they settle too quickly or they're too cooperative. Another one is they have a lack of confidence because they speak up less in the boardroom or they're less likely to submit themselves for a promotion. And there are reasons for that. We're going to talk about that. We'll probably talk about that in a future podcast. There's an idea that women are more conservative than men. And in the business world, this means they're less likely to take acceptable risks. They like to play it too safe. But this can also mean like they're modest, they're traditional, they're stuck in the past, or that they don't think about or enjoy sex as much as men. So men, their sexual prowess is really kind of mixed in with their business prowess. And for women, because they're seen as asexual or frigid or traditional, they're seen as not having as much business prowess. And then the last stereotype is that women are more invested in family and children because they're natural nurturers and caregivers. And because of this, that they're also not as reliable as leaders, CEOs, and business people because of their devotion to their family. And we're actually going to talk more about that as we dive into what internalized misogyny sounds and looks like in a religious setting. So the first way this shows up is actually in the religious text itself. In Proverbs 31, you have the virtuous woman that is more valuable than rubies. So let's talk about what the Bible text actually says about this ideal woman in Proverbs 31. Starting in verse 11, it says, The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so he shall have no need of spoil. Now, this means he doesn't need any wealth or riches or women gained from war, because that was often one of the spoils of war was the women that they captured. So the heart of her husband safely trusts in her. She is so wonderful. Her husband doesn't need anything outside of her. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. And I wonder who decides what is good and what is evil. And then it talks about like all the work she does. This woman is multi-talented. She can weave. She can produce food. She gives meat to her household. She considers and buys fields. She plants the vineyard. She is strong enough to do all the work and handle everything that is expected of her. 
And she works all night long. It says in verse 18, her candle goeth not out by night. And then it talks about how she caretakes the poor and she reaches forth her hands to the needy in verse 20. And her family never goes without because she is so industrious and she keeps them warm whenever it snows and they never have to worry about that. And she even makes an excess of stuff that she can sell and she brings in money and she's incredibly wise. Only wisdom comes out of her mouth and she's always kind. Her tongue is the law of kindness, it says in verse 26. And in verse 27, she's never idle. It says she eateth not the bread of idleness. And then verse 28, her children arise up and call her blessed and they praise her. Even her husband praises her because they all love her so much and think she's so amazing. And then in verse 30, it says, Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. So you're almost hearing like the subtle shaming of worrying about your appearance or actually liking your appearance. Just like there's so much shame about being valued by other people or even valuing yourself. So, and it just says, the woman who feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. So there's a lot of expectations here. This is a woman that all of her devotion is to her family. I didn't hear anything about how she takes care of herself. Everything she does is for others and she works tirelessly and is never idle, which Many times when this was translated for me or we were having discussions about this meant that she didn't rest. This woman tirelessly works for others and is always creating something. She creates an excess so that even then she she can take that excess and sell it and have extra money. She is foreseeing everybody's needs. She is like the super caretaker. Holy crap. Like, that is a huge expectation of what a woman, what an ideal woman should be like. This is what a godly woman looks like. I'm getting tired just thinking about this because I tried to be this woman. The one that plants, the one that cans the goods, the one that sews the clothes, the one that makes the Halloween costumes, the one that makes all the holidays special, the one that gives my undivided attention to all the kids, even when I am going crazy, the one who never takes time to herself and feels guilty for resting. No wonder women feel guilt for having a business. No wonder we feel guilty for going to school, for educating ourselves, for reading a book, for taking a nap for going to the bathroom by ourselves without someone else present. No wonder we have such a hard time giving ourselves the care that we need. Because in this first example, we're taught that we're supposed to be working tirelessly for others and for the Lord. And there's no room for us in this scenario. And this continues, I went on to a Christian commentary, healthychristianhome.com, and this is a blog written by a pastor's wife, and she says in this blog post that she pulled several other pastor's wives, including, I believe, her mother or her grandmother, and talked to them about their experiences and what they believed was a virtuous woman or an ideal woman. Now, here are 12 traits she says makes a virtuous or ideal or godly woman. The first one is the ideal Christian woman raises children. If you are a woman listening to this, raise your hand to yourself. Mine is up high. If you thought your worth and value was attached to raising children, to bearing children and raising children, I was infertile for 10 years. I ran like a group at BYU for women who were having a hard time getting pregnant. And we had people who had been trying anything from like three to six months all the way up to people 
I think I was the one who'd been trying the longest. At that point, I think it had been like two and a half years and still couldn't get pregnant. And the pain of these women, the absolute pain and shame and feelings of worthlessness. One woman said, I wonder if God isn't allowing me to have kids because he knows I'm going to be a bad mom. You could hear this feeling of maybe God isn't giving me kids because I'm a bad person. The pain was so deep. And I think many of us understood that we were not valuable until we had had kids. And you see this throughout the Bible as well. You see this with Abraham's Sarah. You see this with Isaac's Rebecca. You see this with Jacob's Rachel. These women all struggle to bear children. And it is such a point of shame that they give their handmaidens. And we won't even get into what that means about sexism and misogyny. But they give their slave women to have sex with their husbands so that they can bear children. In Genesis 16, 2, this is a very recent version of the Bible. I like reading all the different versions because they read so differently than the King James version I was raised with. But Sarah says to Abram, God has not seen fit to let me have a child. Sleep with my maid. Maybe I can get a family from her. So we have this sense of, I have to have a family. That is my purpose. That is my only purpose. And because I can't have a family here, sleep with my maid and maybe she'll bear children. And the total lack of rights for the handmaid. I mean, I have so many feelings about that, but but I don't want to get off into that tangent. So raising children is the first thing this blog, healthychristianhome.com, says is necessary to be an ideal woman. And they also mention being a servant. So they say things like good works, service to others, hospitality, selflessness. So you're getting that feeling that we got in Proverbs 31, the giving. This is a person that is doing things for other people all the time. So selflessness comes up a lot. And while I think there is a place for selflessness, when we don't mention that it's also okay to take care of yourself, that there's a way to serve others in a way that's a win-win for us, I think we really do a disservice particularly to women who we view the ideal version of a woman as being selfless, as being a servant. I mean, even that, a servant, what comes up for you when I say a servant? Does that person get to take care of themselves? Do they get to rest? Do they get to have free will? Do they get to choose to do things that they like to do? Or do they have to do others' bidding? Do they have very little personal autonomy? I mean, words really are powerful. The second thing they say makes an ideal woman is modest and humble. They said that an ideal woman would be modest and humble in dress and in the way she thinks of herself. So she thinks more of others than herself. The way she dresses, acts, and speaks is in ways that benefit those around her first and foremost. So she is dressing to caretake other people's feelings, emotions, thoughts. And she is humble to make sure that no one feels bad about themselves. She cares for other people's egos. The third thing they said is she would be submissive and respectful, acknowledging the authorities in her life, a.k.a. the men and submitting to their authority. The fourth thing is she would be a teacher. And I don't have a problem with this idea of being a teacher, but they go on to say, recognize you're always an example to others and your actions teach those younger than you. So she's saying, 
everything you do, every word you speak is setting an example for other people. You don't live for yourself. You live as an example for others. And so you're not allowed to make choices that are the best for you because you're setting an example for other people and giving them permission perhaps to do things that might not be okay or showing them what is okay. And this is where I think we get a lot of that gatekeeping that happens inside of high demand religion. This is where you get older women and even women your own age really getting on other people's cases for what they do and don't do. Really policing each other's behavior and our words and the way we dress and the way we show up in the world. There's this idea, this very codependent idea that I am my sister's keeper, that I am responsible for keeping my sister from making decisions that I think would be harmful for her. Not really taking into account whether she thinks those things are harmful for her or whether she thinks those things are empowering or disempowering. But I make the decision about what's okay for her and then I impose that on her. The fifth thing, I think we're on number five. She loves her husband and kids. And I notice that there is an assumption that the ideal woman is both married and a mother. The fact that they just say an ideal woman loves her husband and kids, like there's no room for unmarried women there. There's no room for women who are either unmarried or married without kids. So again, this idea that a woman's worth is tied up in being married, in being chosen by a man, and then in bearing and rearing children. And it goes on further to say she also never speaks ill of her man, is never distracted when her husband or children need her attention. So she's not allowed to numb. She's not allowed to check out. And she's not allowed to have personal time or personal boundaries. If her husband or kids need her attention, she is present always. The next thing they say is a trait of the ideal woman is she exercises self-control. She doesn't gossip. She doesn't cave to anger. She isn't selfish. She's patient and kind. She turns the other cheek when confronted with anger. She's discreet and keeps others' confidences. Like, that is a lot to expect from any human. And there's a lot left to interpretation there. That you aren't selfish. What does that mean? For some people, being selfish is taking a nap. For other people, being selfish is like taking other people's stuff. One of those things I would not be okay with. It would go against my values. And the other thing I think is necessary in order to live a happy, healthy life. What does it mean to be selfish? And who decides? But to always be patient and kind, to turn the other cheek, to never allow yourself to feel anger, I think this is a recipe for disaster. So the next thing they say is a trait of the ideal woman is she is a keeper of the home. And really, this this is that box so many of us are put into, that we're allowed to have interests outside of the home, but primarily, we're a keeper of the home, we are a wife, we are a mother, and that is our primary focus. And then, you know, we're allowed you know, a cute little business, but it can't interfere with those things. Like we can do those things on the side, but it can't interfere with those things. And yeah, we're allowed to work out, but it can't interfere with how much time and attention we give to our husband, our kids, and our home or to our devotion to the Lord. Like our hobbies and our self-care and even like our health cannot take precedence over caring for these other people, and for our home. And they go on to say that she makes the clean, that she makes the home clean and welcoming, a place for connection around a family meal, a place for spiritual devotion. And even though chores are usually shared between husband and wife, we keep the home at the center of our hearts. This means we're present when we're at home. Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of a stay-at-home mom 
okay? Let's let's start there. Little empathy exercise. You are a stay-at-home mom with small children. And right here, they're saying you need to keep a tidy, organized home that is a place where we all feel connection and where people want to be and there's a family meal and there's spiritual devotion and we are always present. Those of us who are mothers, are there ever times you needed to emotionally or mentally check out? Because the demands of motherhood of young children is so overwhelming. And it is all-consuming, 24-7. I mean, those kids follow you to the bathroom. You are lucky if you get a shower. Trying to sleep. Sometimes even like at night, right? You don't get a full night's sleep. Some of us walk around like walking zombies. I know I looked like Night of the Living Dead for a good few years. Our houses are disasters. The things that we clean up get messed up within five minutes. There are fingerprints everywhere. Toys strewn everywhere. My hair looked like a rat's nest. I rocked the messy bun like nobody's business. And you betcha. After a sleepless night and teething and projectile vomiting, there were times I was not emotionally present because I was tired and I'm human and I needed to just check out. But we've got this almost like Stepford wife expectation that we're going to be little pretty robots that are always present, there to meet everybody's needs, and to cook the hot meal. This is not healthy. Their next trait is that the ideal woman is kind. And they go on to say she must be willing to set aside her feelings and emotions so she can be kind even when she doesn't feel like it. She doesn't hold grudges. She agrees with others quickly. She isn't contentious. She forgives quickly. She's meek and patient. She loves everyone and strives for perfect harmony. She's thankful in all things. And I literally wrote off in the margins, are we talking about a human being here or a blow-up doll? Are we talking about a robot? If we're holding grudges, There's a reason. There's something unresolved there. There are times when we don't have unkind feelings, and that is valid. It's usually telling us where we have a boundary that is being crossed or we're being creeped out by somebody who is, like, doing things that are not socially appropriate or they're saying words that are not socially appropriate. This is not okay. We are not blow-up dolls. We are not plastic. We are not robots. We have feelings, and those feelings are guides. Those feelings are valid. And there are times we should not agree with others quickly. There are times that it's okay to say, hey, I disagree. This is why I disagree. This is my perspective. And disagreeing is not contention. Disagreeing is an opportunity for us to see a different perspective. And when I hear meek and patient, is there a time for patience? Absolutely. But when meekness and patience means that I allow people to walk all over me, which is often how this is interpreted, that is not okay. We are people. We have boundaries. And we deserve respect, too. And the last thing she says is the ideal woman loves God first. She loves God with all of her heart, soul, mind, strength. Her relationship with the Lord comes first, then her relationship with her husband and kids, then her family and friends. And in the margins, all I wrote was, where is the space for the relationship with herself? What I'm hearing is the ideal woman is disconnected from herself and puts everyone first and like that Proverbs 31 woman works and burns the candle at both ends 
and finds her value in how much she can produce and how much she can do for other people and how perfectly she can do it and how little exhaustion she can show on her face and how much she can smile and continue to be quiet and meek and submissive and serve everyone else but her. There's no space for the woman except as a servant to others in both of these scenarios. In these scenarios, we're talking about a creature that is infinitely kind, understanding, forgiving, beautiful, and put together, constantly serving others without a thought for herself. This isn't healthy. Does it surprise you that women raised with this ideal would feel like they're constantly falling short of the perfection expected of them? It isn't surprising to me because this is unrealistic. This is not human. This is blow-up doll material. When we constantly feel like we're falling short of the expectation, it creates a deep feeling of shame and self-loathing, which leads us to compare and judge others. We have a culture where we don't trust one another, where we're constantly judging one another because we don't feel adequate or enough ourselves because the expectation is so high and it's constantly moving upward. We never arrive. We will talk about more of that in an upcoming episode. So here's the big question I have for all of us. Feel free to play this on repeat for the next week. Take notes, journal, get curious. What were you taught was the ideal woman? What does that woman's body look like? How old is she? How much does she weigh? What do her boobs look like? What does her butt look like? Is she allowed wrinkles? Or cellulite? Is she allowed blemishes? Is she allowed to get hormonal acne at that time of the month? How is she allowed to dress? If she wears too many clothes or too baggy of clothes, is that good or bad? If she wears too few clothes and shows too much skin, is that good or bad? What does that mean about her value as a person if she's showing too little or too much? What is she allowed to study or pursue as a career? Is she allowed to have a career? How much success, wealth, or power is she permitted to have? Is there a limit? How much feels okay and how much feels like too much? Can you trust or depend on this woman as a leader? Why or why not? Are there certain places where it's okay for her to be a leader and certain places where it wouldn't be okay for her to be a leader? How's she allowed to speak? What is she allowed to feel? Are there some feelings that are okay and other feelings that are not okay? Are there some feelings she should keep to herself? Are there some things she's not allowed to admit? What is she allowed to want for herself? What hobbies is she allowed? Which hobbies are not okay? Is she allowed to have sex outside of marriage? Is that sex limited in any way? Why? Must she get married? By what age? Must she have children? How many? What household duties must she fulfill? Does she share these duties with others? Must she get someone's permission for any of this? If so, whose? As you give yourself a chance to explore these questions, ask yourself, how are these ideals affecting how I view myself and other women today? Today's step is just about allowing ourselves to become aware of these messages. Some of the most insidious, limiting beliefs we carry around as women are the ideas of what a good girl looks like, 
What does an ideal woman look like? How does she behave? What she allowed to do? What she allowed to think? What she allowed to feel? Allow yourself to become aware of what comes up. Allow it to speak, to say what it really thinks and feels. And then take it to court. Are these thoughts true? Is there proof that they're not true? Really work as if you were taking this thought to trial and you were the prosecution. How is this thought not true? What is your case against this thought? Write down everything that comes up. Write down all the evidence. And don't worry if it takes some time. I have a feeling I'm going to have messages of internalized misogyny continue to pop up. Maybe for the rest of my life, but it's going to get better and better. The box I allow myself to live in will continue to expand as I recognize internalized misogyny, get curious with those thoughts that come up, and then push against them and rewrite them. Every time I do that, the box I dwell in expands. And hopefully that box continues to expand and expand and expand until the whole world is a possibility for me. And I hope the same for you. Thanks so much for joining me today. I can't wait to hear what you'll say in the Facebook group. We've been having some great discussions over on the Emancipate Yourself Facebook group. And I can't wait to hear about your experiences, how you interpreted things, what messages were you given about women. And I want to hear from you men as well. This is a discussion for all of us. I feel like we approach wisdom, we approach understanding the more we get more perspectives. I want to hear from all of you. And I look forward to hearing what you're going to say. And I'll talk to you again next Sunday.